The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch. And I'm Molly Balin. And today's episode is another special bonus episode, and we are very excited to have on a special guest. He is an Oscar-nominated, BAFTA-nominated, and Emmy-winning cinematographer and director. His career has so many highlights, we don't even have enough time to mention them all, including some real groundbreaking features such as Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Jurassic Park, all three Back to the Futures, Apollo 13, Rock and Roll High School, even an episode of Tales from the Crypt, and a movie that I watched way too often at way too young of an age, DC (laughs) Cab. He also is a frequent collaborator with John Carpenter, including on Halloween, The Fog, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, but of course, most importantly to Molly and me, Escape from New York. Please welcome 2014 American Society of Cinematographers Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Dean Cundy. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Is that really true about me? <laughs> I think you just make, you're making that up. Well, I guess it depends on if you can read, believe everything you read on the internet. Ah, well, absolutely. I always do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for joining us uh, today, Dean. Uh, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this. We talk a lot about uh, the lighting and the camera work in this movie. So this is something we've really been looking forward to. And I mean, why don't we jump right in? I mean, one of the biggest features of this movie is that so much of it takes place at night. And it's uh, so dark. uh, And... Can you just go into, you know, filming this movie and the challenge that would have presented with a vast majority of it taking place at nighttime? Well, that was one of the most daunting aspects of it while we were in pre-production. They had wanted to shoot in New York, but New York said, what, on the streets and we shut down streets? You must be crazy. So we found um, a whole area in St. Louis near old warehouses and factories and stuff where we were going to have complete free reign to do whatever we wanted, climb on buildings and use fire escapes and all kinds of stuff for, for our lighting equipment. But um, there were a couple of aspects of the show that were interesting. They had really just come out with these new fangled lights, the HMI, now a very common light. We use them all the time. But then they were uh, pretty new, and uh, we were able to get an assortment of them. And what that meant was that they were brighter. Um, they were an interesting blue color. They were the color of um, sunlight. And um, we, they, they used a little less power. So it freed us up to do some interesting creative kind of things with the, the light color and and intensity. And we also had the advantage of a new set of lenses that Panavision, the camera company, had developed and put out. They were faster. That meant you didn't need as much light uh, in order to get an exposure on the film. So uh, I was delighted to be able to uh, to use those. And um, it, they, 
it, it really made um, what we wanted to do a little little easier, but it gave us a little more um, creative flexibility. And then um, part of what we uh, thought about is, as far as the rationale of what the Manhattan prison was like, was the fact that um, there was probably very little electrical power in the prison for these characters. So uh, I said, well, let's use fire as, a, as another source of light. So um, very often you'll see very warm light, which we assume comes from fires and lanterns and things like that, in the uh, square where the helicopters land and, and he first arrives, uh, Pliskin. I had big uh, oil drums set up and we would put uh, trash in them. And um, actually we would then put a source of, of flame. So that became our two colors of lighting. And uh, so the blue was sort of moonlight and the, uh, the orange color was uh, light that was created by the prisoners out of fires and so forth. So those were the um, two colors. And um, the rest of it was trying to make it seeable for the audience, but still give the impression of darkness and a, a sense of foreboding um, for all of these prisoners who have uh, apparently uh, created a new, uh, new lifestyle for themselves out of uh, necessity. So it was, um, it was using the, um, the light as another part of the character, I guess you might say, uh, certainly the mood and, and the environment. I read that you also co-invented something that was called the computerized light <coughs> modulator specifically for this movie. Can you talk a bit about what that does? And if you had not invented that, would the filming of the movie have been affected? Would there have needed to have been more daytime shooting without that? I was always intrigued by the fact that, that since the beginning of movies, they've always tried to create the effect of fire. And you, you needed more light than a fire actually put out to expose uh, early film. And, um, uh, you know, that was true for us also. But um, I, I wanted to try to make the light not just throb or flicker in an artificial way so I, um, I I went up the street two doors from my house to a guy a friend of mine who was an electronics engineer and I said here's what I'd like to do build something that can modulate light in a natural flame-like way um, and even um, have a photo cell an electric eye that we could aim at a fire and it would make the lights follow the fire, flicker when it's bright and when it's dim and so forth. And the guy uh, said, uh, oh, all right, let's see. What a great challenge. Because <clears throat> he was he was in some mundane stuff making um, artificial heart monitors and things. So he thought uh, the drama of that would be great. Well, it became a, uh, um, a, a great, you know, asset for the film because we could uh, plug in, um, you know, a larger amount of lights and have them all flicker at the same uh, way and emulate uh, fire. It became a common thing. Now there's a company that makes them and um, 
<clears throat> almost everybody carries these light modulators. I didn't patent it, and I didn't sell it to anyone, and now I get to watch the company sell these. <laughs> <laughs> Do you wish you had patented it? <laughs> you know, that's one of the things that film is very interesting in that we're always solving new sort of problems, um, creating new illusions. Um, and so very often guys will invent some kind of a new thing, the grips for holding a camera and, and the special effects guys for, you know, creating some kind of an effect. But um, it's a pretty limited market. You know, it's not like you can sell millions of them to the public. So as a result, um, had I patented it, I probably probably could have sold over 50 of them. Well, maybe 50. And I'd have made $100. <laughs> so very often in, in, a, um, in the spirit of sharing, we, we really don't do that. We just let everybody profit from our ideas creatively. Well, along those lines, I'm just curious, um, was there anything at the time that you wish you had that you didn't have access to um, based on today's technology? Things that, you know, shots that you would have liked to have created that you could have created now? The crane arm with the camera remote head hadn't really been invented or developed. It gives you a great deal more visual flexibility. You can make a camera go from fairly high, you know, 20, 30 feet off the uh, surface uh, down to the ground and it can go into windows and all sorts of other, you know, creative visual things. So it would have been nice to have a um, remote head camera with a, um, a crane arm. And um, I don't know, maybe, <clears throat> maybe the speed that our current um, digital cameras are, the speed being the sensitivity to light, because it meant we could have um, actually lit more and more with um, real fires and, and sources of light like that. So I'm kind of curious because we've been talking a little bit about the, the night shoots. And this movie really has quite a bit of moving vehicles. Planes, Cadillacs, choppers feature pretty heavily. And I was wondering if you could speak to some of the challenges of shooting in the dark and choreographing <clears throat> shots with that type of movement. Putting a camera in a car along um, is, has always been you know, an intriguing challenge. Guys have come up with all kinds of rigs with uh, pipe that fasten to the car so you can mount the cameras on the hood or uh, out the side windows and, and all kinds of things like that. So, um, the, you know, we, at the time we got very used to uh, having to do that and, and the grips would uh, carry all of the necessary uh, mechanical stuff for mounting cameras. Um, but it was it was nothing that wasn't unusual. We've always sort of had to do that. We've always had to uh, put the audience inside the car with our characters as they um, as they drive or, or um, you know tied up in the back seat, whatever. <laughs> what about were there any challenges uh, on location itself, um, the physical spaces themselves? 
Do you, did any of the scenes stand out as being a challenge because of the physical space? One of the, the good parts was that the uh, exteriors had plenty of room. We, we were never limited by uh, how far we could see or uh, what streets we had to block off or whatever. We had free reign of this this pretty sizable area of uh, alleys and, and decrepit streets and old brick buildings and uh, everything. Even the even the train station where um, Pliskin goes to uh, uh, and Brain um, <clears throat> go, they, uh, it was deserted and it was interesting and, and um, old. And it's now, I understand, been converted to a shopping mall. But uh, <laughs> um, at the time, it was, you know, it gave us a lot of space. Um, the other side of it is... Um, when you get into the small hallways and so forth, when when uh, Pliskin is sneaking in the first time and he, he finds the uh, the old guy Buck Flower, uh, right, great great fun uh, actor, finds him with the uh, the wrist um, communicator. So those small areas um, were were challenging, but um, you know you, we get used to doing that because stories. You know, always sort of need the camera and the audience to be somewhere um, that this camera uh, and the story uh, demand. I read that 25% of the movie was filmed using the Steadicam and that you were one of the first cinematographers actually to start using the Steadicam. Uh, is that accurate? I would say that's probably pretty accurate. Uh, I know that um, for Halloween with John... Um, the opening shot, which is that long, continuous movement of the camera um, through the house to reveal um, the drama, um, that was one of the very first um, shots to use the camera in a long, extended storytelling way. Um, there had been a couple of others. Uh, Bound for Glory used it to uh, take the audience um, through the uh, the camp, uh, but um, but they've been they were fairly limited. <clears throat> so we we actually um, you know was was a lot of fun to work with John because he was always about uh, how do you um, how do you tell the story with the camera, not just you know um, ordinary ways with cut 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 and mm. a close up and a close up, but um, how do you get the audience to move? through the uh, environment and through the story. And the Steadicam, when it came out, John and I uh, looked at each other and said, yes, that's the thing. So um, we, I went to um, Panavision and, and learned how to use it, taught myself and my camera operator. Um, and we uh, started doing the shots ourselves. And uh, as a result, it became you know, a really great tool uh, for um, you know what John and I love doing, and um, so Escape from New York was perfect because we were um, taking the audience into some interesting areas and and uh, long moves um, across you know to the uh, the New York town squares that were you know full of trash and fire and and um, and, and in order to uh, Create the mood, but also, as I say, take the audience on the journey 
with Pliskin, and uh, the Steadicam was the perfect uh, device for that. Um, and and um, you know, it became one of mine and John's favorite tools. Well, speaking of which, you've had several collaborations with John Carpenter and the crew that worked on the original Halloween, and I'm wondering if you could speak to what makes a successful creative collaboration, in your opinion. I think it's a um, it's a mutual respect for each other's uh, storytelling abilities and interests. Um, we we were fortunate in that we both liked um, to move the camera and to create these storytelling shots and visuals. And um, so I think um, that um, means that you're not sort of second-guessing each other or trying to convince each other uh, of some other way. Uh, John was great at saying, you know, I think the shot should be this, and he would walk it with his hands up indicating the frame, and, and I would say, oh, yes, of course, and you can... Uh, visualize that and then the next thing is to make that come to fruition by figuring out exactly where's the camera going to be where do you hide the lights how do you move the uh, actors and um, so it's a uh, very much one of the greatest collaborative uh, styles in filmmaking and it's the one I really enjoy doing I've done with uh, Bob Zemeckis and 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 uh, other directors yeah, can can you talk a bit, I guess, a little bit more about the collaboration between a cinematographer and a director? Because John Carpenter, Robert Zemeckis, uh, Spielberg, several others you've worked with more than once. Just, I, you know, I guess for, for those of us who are not in the filmmaking industry, what goes into a, a real good collaboration between those two roles? Well, I think it starts with the script, reading a scene, um, understanding what the intention of it is and what the characters should and could do. And then, um, you know, a lot of times what you do is you will rehearse the scene with the actors and, um, it, you know, they, they bring their character things to it. Uh, the, the, uh, director will have, um, his, um, point of view. Um, a lot of times I will, watch a rehearsal and I'll stand somewhere else. Um, the director, you know, watching sort of the front, the proscenium portrayal of the scene. And I'll go to one side or another looking for opportunities to, um, put the camera somewhere interesting or to move the camera to reveal something and so forth. And then after the rehearsal, we will usually talk about the, the intention of the scene and what we just saw with the actors and um, the director will say, I think maybe this, and I will say, Oh, and also maybe this. And we look to embellish each other's thoughts. So it's a um, great way to do it. You know, there, there are other styles. Uh, there are some directors who think in terms of, of shots, individual shots rather than a moving camera. So you learn to follow along with that because, uh, of course, the the director is always the uh, the final boss, and um, so as a result, um, you know you you learn to adapt to um, different um, directorial styles. Uh, the fun thing to me is when you know um, all the styles match up. When the even when the production designer 
designs a set or finds an environment, he does it with an eye to um, telling the story and where does the camera go and so forth to offer up a lot of opportunities. You uh, you mentioned uh, the script, and we like to point out a lot on our show when there's a difference between the shooting script or the draft script and the finished movie. And we did a bonus episode discussing the deleted opening scene, and, and that's on YouTube. Anyone that's a fan of the movie is, has watched that scene. Was there a lot... That's the only though cut footage that seems to be available was there a lot of footage shot that wasn't used or or were scenes generally cut on this movie at the script stage before even filmed and that opening scene is really the only footage film that was cut as far as i remember the opening scene was the only thing that was um, deleted almost everything else we um we had uh, scenes that were pretty integral to the story there was nothing that you know that like on some films that you you can delete because they're fluff with the script and with um, with john everything is pretty much lean and um, and needed for the storytelling so um i think that um we shot very you know carefully and and uh, everything we needed which is good because sometimes you'll work on on a uh, a film with a different director and um he will uh, or she will have a way and a scene and and some additional camera angles and stuff and and there's a feeling that it's not really essential to the story even though it's written in the script you can spend a lot of time and effort shooting these scenes and these shots only to be dismayed um you know i've been dismayed several times with um you know what i thought were great shots that we took a lot of time with and then um, they're cut out of the movie and the audience doesn't get to see your fabulous work do you like uh that dvds have deleted scenes yeah i think that's one of the great things about dvds is that um you know if you watch the movie first and it's entertaining or whatever to be able to dive deeper into uh, the creative process and and look at additional scenes and conversations about uh, you know creative approaches that were used or not used you know so all of, all of the extras i think on dvds are great especially for you know serious film fans um and uh, certainly for uh, film students and uh, you know aspiring filmmakers well, I had a question because, you know, when at the time of the shot, there obviously wasn't any digital film. And I'm just curious, as a cinematographer, seeing this huge transition and this focus, even from like independent filmmaking to go from, you know, the pinnacle being 35 millimeter film to having availability of, of digital in, in this day of age, like, how did you feel about that transition? Was that something that you really just embraced or, you know, what's your perspective on it? I guess you could say I, I approached it cautiously, um, but optimistically. Mm. Um, you know, with film, all of the decisions that show up in the film have to be made in front of the lens. How much light and how much contrast and the colors and all of that. You, you had very limited control after the fact once the you know, film was shot. So it made you very um, 
very selective and very thoughtful about everything you did. Where did you put the light? Um, where did the camera go? What size lens? Uh, and so forth. And uh, knowing that it wouldn't be seen until probably a day later when the lab had developed the film and printed it and you would go into the screening room and look to see, you know, had you made the right decisions and, and uh, so forth. With digital, it slowly developed uh, into something that was not quite as good as film to uh, something that's becoming close to it as far as sharpness and uh, latitude, the ability to see deep light, um, light areas and deep shadows. The advantage was also, um, and in some ways a disadvantage, that on the set there was a monitor and the director and everybody could see exactly, uh, or pretty close to exactly, what the shot was going to be. The, um, you know, how wide was the lens and how much contrast and light and, and um, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that uh, becomes the uh, technical things that, um, you know, complement the, the creative. So having the, the monitor is a good way to see and talk about, you know, what you want. Um, at, at first, it was also kind of a um, interesting aspect because uh, not only could the director and, and the cinematographer see what, what it was, but um, so could the producer and, and um, the uh, a lot of other uh, people who normally would only go to the dailies, they they would come and see on the monitor and say, "Was well, it really going to be that dark? <laughs> or can't we can't we see more of the uh, set?" Their decisions weren't always inf as informed as the creative ones of the director and and perhaps myself. You know, after a while, I think the novelty of that wore off, hmm. and um, now, now um, it's pretty much left to the creatives. Was there one scene in particular in your memory that stood out as like that? Wow, that was really the hardest scene to shoot in Escape from New York. Gee, that would be difficult to say because uh, you know some of the the difficult stuff were the big wide shots where um, Pliskin first shows up um, and the uh, he walks through alleys and he walks across the. Um, the square where the uh, air crashed airplane is there and there's fires and large areas of buildings in the back that have to be lit because um, we always shot at night and very, very few daytime shots because, uh, of course, it was supposed to all take place at night. So, um, you know, we would, we would do some interiors at night, but the big exterior shots were probably some of the most um, challenging because um, you, anytime you see something, it has to have light on it. Uh, it. You know, if there's no light, it's black. So to see something, you have to put a light and you have to run cables and you have to hide the lights and, and um, you have to have a crew that can run over to the top of that building over there to put some light on the other building over there. So it was, uh, it's not just about creating the mood in the foreground, but it's also about creating the mood over a large area. So I remember that the, the uh, shot with uh, 
Pliskin walking past the uh, crashed airplane um, as being one of the you know most time engaging ones and and challenging we have a standard joke we call those shots available light which means that every available light that we have on the truck <laughs> and um, I remember that we, we you know we had out all the cable and every light and then you wish you just had one more over there so now you say, well, wait, maybe if we move that one there, we can get it to do that. And then we have a light for, you know, and, and it becomes this, uh, this great um, chess game of lights. So I was curious, in my research, I found that you have a very positive reputation for being a stable influence on set. And I was wondering if you could chat about how you managed to stay solution-focused and balanced under pressure. I grew up with a a stable childhood. Um, I grew up with parents that um, said, you know, you don't rob people of their dignity and and try to be friend to everybody and so forth. And, you know, and I think that that kind of background um, carried through because when I started working in film, I, I realized we're all working together. And if you can get everybody moving the same direction um, with the same um, degree, of an, a degree of enthusiasm and, and uh, care, then um, it only helps the movie and it helps, you know, it, it helps everybody who's involved with the movie because their work then shows up on the screen as being, you know, better than average maybe. And um, so I've always felt that, uh, you know, you you always include the crew in the creative process and the problem solving, you know, so everybody feels they're contributing, um, not just a day's work, but uh, to the result of the movie. And there, there's a lot of guys that I run into years later who worked on a crew of some movie and they said, oh, that was one of my best experiences because the movie was so successful or people love it or whatever. And, and I get to say, yeah, I was a part of that. And I think that's that's you know a, an essential element to learn how how to deal with the you know I often when I talk at film schools and and filmmakers and and so forth um, I tell them that a film school will teach you uh, all the science of cinematography the uh, lenses and focal lengths and and the um, how many you know, foot candles comes out of a light and depth of field and on and on. There's a huge amount of background science that um, contributes to the creativity. It has to be used. And I, I'd say they will often analyze films for their creative style and how did they accomplish storytelling and so forth. But I say one of the things that they don't teach you, there's no class in the psychodrama of working on a film, mm. working working with um, all kinds of different personalities, and and sometimes you'll work with a a, a star that has an inflated ego or a director that's uh, you know very um, adamant about they are the only ones who know how to do it and so forth. So becoming um, part of the process of managing people 
managing them creatively and managing them towards a common goal is really, I think, important. And, you know, and obviously it's not just film. You know, anybody who works anywhere with other people should realize that you're all supposedly going down the same road for the same uh, purpose and not, Mm. you know, for your own. Uh, And speaking of uh, fun collaborations, Broadway show scene, is that indeed you as one of the musicians in the Broadway show scene? Is that your back we are looking at? Yes, you've discovered uh, the (laughs) (laughs) Are you Um, actually playing an instrument? (laughs) Yeah, when, you know, when I was in... um, well, high school and all through college, I played the saxophone in the marching bands, the concert band, um, the jazz band. Uh, you know, it, music was a, an important avocation of mine because it was so different, but it requires concentration and creativity and all that. So, blah, blah, blah. So, um, I was uh, a saxophone player for quite a while. And uh, so when... John knew that. He said, you know, why don't you play the saxophone in the pit orchestra? And I said, why not? So, uh, yes, it is me. It's my back. Um, <laughs> you know, it's you, sometimes you uh, you have trouble convincing people. They say, okay, now watch. Here I come. See, there it is. It's at my back. And they say, uh-huh, yeah, right. <laughs> this is a movie that came out, uh, as we record this, almost 40 years ago, and it was not a huge box office hit. It was successful, but it was not a huge hit. But it has really achieved a longevity, and it is a huge cult status. What is it about this movie that you feel is, is attributable to that? You know, that's a good question, because I've worked on a few movies, John's movies. The Thing, for instance, when it came out, wasn't a big success. Some of the other uh, Hook with Spielberg, uh, wasn't a big success, but they've gone on to achieve success and notoriety because people realized maybe that uh, we were slightly ahead of the curve as far as audience perceptions and taste and, and so forth. And um, Halloween was the first, what we might demeaningly call the slasher movie. It was a, a horror movie, but it was a suspense thriller. We used no blood, and it wasn't a big success the first week. But as the audience said, hey, this is new and different, the audience grew. And I think that's true of uh, uh, of John's movie. You know, we were always a little bit ahead of the curve as far as audience taste and perceptions and so forth. But over a period of time, people said, hey, that wasn't such a bad movie. Why, how come I missed it? And, and now they begin sharing it with their friends. And, um, I, you know, I've been to a lot of places, conventions and things to, uh, to meet people. And, um, I run into these, um, people in their thirties and so forth that, and forties that say, oh, you know, it was so important to my childhood that, uh, I showed it to my kids and my son loves the movie. Um, and so they're passing on the accomplishments, the success of the movie to a new audience and the audience grows. And it's, that to me is one of the, the most uh, rewarding feelings is that um, to know that 
that uh, so many films I've worked on have found a, an appreciative audience and um, uh, it, it, an audience everywhere. There's almost nowhere in the world I can go, and I've been to a, a lot of places, that there isn't somebody who, who you know, hasn't seen one of the films I've worked on. So it's, a, it's, it's great to know that the audience is still there, that the audience is um, passing on the, uh, the experiences and, and that um, I was able to be a part of it. Yeah, well, let's segue <clears throat> into uh, a couple of other movies uh, that you've worked on. As I said at the, the intro, it's just far too long of an IMDb page to get into all of them. But your Oscar nomination came from Roger Rabbit. And, I mean, that type of movie blending live action with cartoons had certainly been done before. But I, I remember I was 12 or 13 when that came out. And I just remember what a big deal was being made about this movie coming out with, wow, you've got to see this, you know, this is really a groundbreaking thing. Can you just go into a bit about the, the creation of this movie and the challenges of, of making a movie like this? Where if I, I haven't seen it in a while, but if my memory serves, there's really, there's Bob Hoskins, there's Christopher Lloyd, and everything else is cartoons. Yeah, pretty much the, uh, the, the world our two humans live in is dominated by uh, the tunes. When I was a kid, I was fascinated by animation. When I was like 12, I went to see all of the Disney films. They reissued Snow White and um, everything about animation. And I began collecting animation art. And <clears throat> so when Bob said, hey, we're going to do this movie, are you interested? It's got animation in it. I said, <laughs> absolutely, of course. Why do you ask? <laughs> so um, I had a... A head start, I guess, as far as understanding, you know, technique and, and all of that. But um, we knew we wanted to take it somewhere further. And um, it it was the, one of the last movies, if not the last, with animation drawn on paper with pencils, mm. drawn on um, clear cells with ink and paint, um, photographed and composited in a film, you know, optical printer. So it, it was literally one of the last using a lot of these techniques, but ironically um, took the process, of, um, you know, to the next level. And uh, now, you know, a tremendous number of movies uh, all benefit from from the um, the techniques and the sensibilities and the aesthetics that that we tried to achieve in Roger and to take the animation compositing with live action process to the next level to somewhere it had never been before and then of course about five years later uh, we have what is considered one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made uh, it, it's in the AFI 100 and again incredibly groundbreaking stuff uh jurassic park and working with steven spielberg on that movie yeah that that was a um, again one of my great exciting adventures it was the first time anybody had created a photorealistic creature in a computer trying to make you believe that it was actually real um rather than fantasy and um so uh, ilm had to actually develop the process and the technique to do it 
and we all had to, um, you know, think. It was um, interesting that Roger Rabbit actually uh, gave me such a uh, sort of background, but also instincts for compositing creatures onto live action. And um, the things that we learned on Roger Rabbit, um, you know, sort of commented on, on everything we did. And so uh, it, it was um, a great, great deal of challenge, but also adventure and fun and accomplishment to be able to do that. And, um, you know, I, I'm very sort of pleased with the fact that you can run the film now and there are no strange artifacts as far as the compositing, the, the technical stuff that give it away as being old. Um, you know, it was, it, it holds up uh, against today's um, technical uh, work that's possible. Absolutely. You, you mentioned um, meeting people and them telling you that they're introducing their kids to the movies. And I've introduced my kids to the Jurassic Park movies. And, you know, they're, they're young and they love the Jurassic Park movies. And they will see other movies from the 90s and they will say to me, oh, boy, these, these graphics are so bad. These are really old. You can see this is from the 90s, Dad. They do not say that about Jurassic Park. Yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that, um, you know, that's that's a common perception about it. Well, as we're wrapping up here, I'm just wondering, because we do have many listeners who are creatives themselves and, and are up and coming. And I was wondering if you have any advice that you would offer an up and coming uh, creative or filmmaker today. Hmm, good question. Well, based on my own experience, I, I would say um, always look to the future, the creativity that you can um, muster out of what we do. Stay stay informed uh, about the technical, but um, always with the idea that it's not about the technical. It's always about the story and the, the adventure and what you can do for an audience. So I uh, I um, always say, you know, keep keep in mind how you're going to use this stuff creatively. Don't just use the technical and the new stuff uh, because it's there. Um, do it because uh, it, you know, it needs to be done. And um, and also, don't listen to people who say no. <laughs> you know, because uh, very often they're they're judging what you can do or how you're going to do it based on old techniques or their knowledge uh, without the the advantage of seeing new techniques or or wanting to be more creative. So um, when people say, oh, I don't think that can be done, uh, you accept the challenge and find a way. So my last question is for 13-year-old me who would be angry at me if I did not ask this. As I mentioned in the <laughs> intro, I watched the movie DC Cap way too much too often at way too <laughs> young of an age. Uh, do you have Same any one. interesting memories from making the movie DC Cab? Yeah, you know, it was an interesting group of people. <laughs> um, the cast, um, you know, even the crew. But um, it was fun working in Washington, D.C. Um, it was fun working with um, characters like um, Mr. T and um, Bill Maher was uh, right. in it and... Uh, 
before he became, um, you know, political commentator. And um, so it was a, a great assortment of people. And, um, you know, it's, it's a film that, uh, again, sort of has found a, a niche market uh, uh, audience uh, because, you know, a lot of times I'll say DC Cab, people say, what was that? And then there are other people who say, oh, I love that movie. So um, once again, it was fun working on something that was unusual and creative and gave us a chance to uh, do some new stuff. What do you say, Molly? You want to get in one last question? You know, I was kind of wondering if there was anything that went to just complete hell <laughs> from a, a principal photography perspective. If you can remember if there was anything that just like completely tanked and kind of like an oh my God moment and what you did to solve that. Hmm, that's a good one. There are all those oh my God moments, or they should be. You should always be looking to do something different, creative, um, and storytelling. So, um, I don't know. I, I don't think I could point to anything in particular uh, because it was always the challenge that we um, strove to uh, overcome some awful thing or the impossible and that can't be done or the challenge. The director says, well, yep. Yeah, that may be, but here's what I would like to do with this shot. And then you say, oh, boy, this is going to be fun. So, um, <laughs> no, I, I, can't, I can't say there's anything that sticks out in my mind um, as being something that, um, you know, was a, a mistake or un unaccomplished or anything like that. You know, that's the thing that's so great about film and the thing that's uh, so great about what I've done, uh, my career has been, you know, being able to accomplish um, new things all the time. Well, that is a lovely note to end on. Dean, thank you so very much for being willing to come on and join us today. It's been an absolute delight and a treat. Much appreciated. Well, my pleasure completely. And so you can follow us on Twitter at NY Minute Pod. Also, we have a Facebook group, Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm -hmm.